Hey everybody, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development with our Emergency Response and Risk Management podcast and videocast. I'm delighted to have Francesca with us. She is a senior cash advisor with Save the Children. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Craig, and thanks uh, everyone for having me here and um, for spending some time and listening to my experience. I, I hope I can meet your expectations. I'm sure you will. Why don't you tell us what your job is with Save the Children? Explain what you do. Sure. Um, so I joined Save the Children four years four years and a half ago um, as a humanitarian cash uh, advisor. Uh, and um, in my role, um, in which I've been, I've been growing in the past four years and a half, uh, I mainly do um, technical leadership around how to use cash markets uh, as uh, modalities of intervention in humanitarian context. So uh, in, when I say I do leadership and I do uh, um, policy making around that, I'm referring to defining how we should be working, um, what are the quality standards that we should be uh, looking at and, and practicing in our uh, projects in humanitarian context. Uh, um, I also develop trainings uh, and tools uh, and, and guidance materials for our colleagues uh, in the country offices so that uh, um, they can learn about this area of work and they can practice it, uh, practice it in a confident way. Um, so um, at the moment, I'm also um, uh, leading a team of other advisors like me. And uh, um, I'm also co-chairing a group across the movement because Save the Children is a very complex organization. I can tell you a little bit about that. I, I chair this group across the movement uh, with other cash advisors like me and other people, uh, other colleagues uh, that uh, with their work, with their area of expertise, contribute to um, designing and implementing cash programs uh, in humanitarian context and also in non-humanitarian context. Uh, the work these days is particularly hectic because uh, of the COVID response and uh, because COVID has uh, drawn a lot of attention on uh, uh, the importance of cash um, assistance to the populations that are affected by COVID. So I don't know if you, if you want me to tell a bit about uh, what cash assistance is and why we use that in humanitarian context. I was going to ask, what actually is yes. this? So please tell us. Yes, yes. So um, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with uh, humanitarian responses, but traditionally they have, um, uh, they, they were based on in-kind support, so giving things to people. So providing them with food, providing them with uh, um, tents, shelters, so providing them uh, with uh, water through water trucking, uh, mattresses to sleep, you know, providing people with things. Um, besides, of course, uh, um, ensuring they're, they're protected uh, uh, from, uh, from external threats uh, and, and also they receive uh, legal support. Um, so uh, in the past 10, 15 years, uh, uh, I should say 15 years, yes, there has been uh, um, a shift 
uh, in that uh, we have started as humanitarians that uh, we have started practicing or replacing in-kind support with cash assistance by giving cash to people by giving them vouchers like the food stamps in the, in the states that uh, we essentially give them the power to decide what they buy what they what they need and they will buy it uh, instead of us giving them things that perhaps are not necessarily at that point in time, uh, perhaps are not reflective of uh, their family composition and their priorities in that specific moment. And it would be very cost ineffective for us to try and understand and assess every individual situation in all of the households that are affected in, in, by, by a crisis uh, to understand exactly what kind of impact, in kind of package they need. Uh, so giving cash, is flexible, is dignifying. It also, um, you know, uh, helps uh, the economic recovery of uh, uh, local markets. So it's a, it's a, a plus in many ways. Um, and uh, during the past 15 years, the sector has learned a lot about it. Um, and uh, um, right now, it's a pretty much consolidated practice, uh, and uh, there is uh, a, a very clear intention by the global leaders that we should see more cash interventions than, than in kind in the future. Wow! So you mentioned that giving cash dignifies people. Is is that to do with the psychology of receiving the cash versus receiving a jacket or a bed or food? Yes, it gives, it dignifies them because it gives them choice and power. Right. Um, and uh, humanitarian assistance uh, in a traditional way can be quite disempowering. Mm. It's also stigmatizing to queue for in kind of, you know, for this bulky food packages. Uh, and uh, um, it, it puts people in a position of, uh, uh, being passive recipient of something that they may not even need. So in your role, do you make a decision about when it would be best to use a cash strategy versus food and clothing and things? And how do you do that? How do you make that decision? So in my, in my role, I don't take decisions. In my role, I advise others to make the best decisions possible. Also because the contexts are very, very different. So in my role, I produce those decision-making tools that will help my colleagues on the ground to make the right decision. So tell us more. What might be in some of that, that checklist or that criteria or that analysis that you do? Yes. So we would check, first of all, that, is, uh, that cash is appropriate to the needs of people. Is it what they need? Is it, uh, what, so the, the key question is, what are the reasons why people right now are not able to meet their needs? Is it because they don't have enough money? Is it because they cannot go to the market? Is it because it's not safe for them to go to the market and buy things? Is it because there are no vendors available selling the commodities they need? Or is it because there are no service providers providing them with essential services like healthcare and education or, or utilities? for the running of their house. Um, so we see if uh, um, financial barriers and the fact that people uh, don't have enough purchasing power essentially are income for, if this is uh, one of the main reasons why they cannot meet their need. Only in those cases, only when a financial barrier is the main reason, then we would recommend the cash as the right solution. 
because imagine if if the reason is that uh, um, there aren't uh, um, the markets and the vendors aren't accessible. We give them cash. That cash would be basically uh, useless uh, because right. they will still don't have anything to buy. So this is the first thing we check, the appropriateness to the needs. And there may be a web of causes that contribute to people not meeting their needs. So we, we should also pick other reasons. Uh, and uh, um, cash should never be a standalone uh, type of intervention. We would also look at uh, um, uh, pairing it with uh, other types of interventions like uh, um, awareness raising on the best uh, uh, feeding and uh, nutrition practices for children, for example, to nudge people to make certain decisions. Sometimes what they lack is the information, the knowledge uh, to make certain spending decisions and consumption decisions. Uh, so this is for the appropriateness. And then there is the operational feasibility. So for a cash to be operationally feasible, we need uh, the markets to be functioning, so the supply chains to be operating. And in, and in the COVID context, we were concerned that, uh, um, uh, you know, import experts, supply chains would be disrupted, uh, that the closure or the restriction of movements uh, of people uh, would uh, impact on the physical access to the markets. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and many other things relating to markets. So we were concerned that cash would not be the right uh, solution, the most appropriate solution. And we always recommended our country offices uh, to be ready to switch to in-kind when people cannot move from their house, for example, to go to the market and they need to receive uh, um, food uh, uh, delivered at their door, for instance. Um, then um, on the operational feasibility, we would look at um, the acceptance by the government that cash is a, is a good uh, solution for them. And uh, there is a lot of controversy uh, on, uh, on cash uh, and uh, suspicion as well uh, from, uh, from the government that uh, is the right thing to do. Um, it may create dependency. That's one of the fears. Uh, um, it, it may go and fund a terrorist uh, um, there are many fears, and we first have to check that the governments of the countries we're working in are happy with us moving on. And the same goes for the uh, communities that we support. Are they, um, what, what do they prefer? Do they prefer cash or, or in-kind? What's better for them and why? And then we would check um, that there are the financial services to deliver the cash uh, or the voucher in a safe way, in a cost-efficient way. And I'm talking about uh, mobile money, for example, services like mobile money, or um, the banking uh, sector, uh, does it work? Um, is there liquidity? We would uh, um, have to make sure that uh, the financing, that the financial services are available to deliver cash in a safe and efficient way. Uh, and the final point that we would consider is uh, whether our organization is capable of doing so, um, uh, or if uh, would have to rely on uh, on partners for for the delivery part. Yeah, that's, um, that's a lot of things to think about when, when implementing a, a strategy like that, because I imagine in my country where I am in Indonesia, there was great concern with COVID. And this time of year, having families from Jakarta, the largest city, 
always traditionally going out to the regions. They will take the money that they've earned over the last year back to the villages. So there's a financial expectation, but if people can't travel because of the virus and fears of infection, that money doesn't transfer and then there's whole villages that are waiting on that money to arrive are gonna be impacted. So that, uh, yeah, I can understand the need. I'd never thought about it like that until I was in this country. So tell us about some of the projects that you've worked on. I see that you're involved in Lebanon and you've studied in Beirut and, G and Geneva and Italy. You're very international. So tell us about some of the experiences that have brought you to this point. Yes. Well, I can tell you how it all started. Um, uh, it, well, I, I graduated uh, um, in economics in uh, 2003 and um, I... And, and immediately after I enrolled into this uh, program on development and cooperation, uh, where I learned how to do project management uh, in the development work. Um, after that, um, my dream was uh, to work with the WHO, the World Health Organization, as an economist uh, to study uh, the access to um, antiretrovirals, uh, you know, for the treatment of, uh, of AIDS. And it, it was an interesting, uh, um, you know, econ economic problem uh, for certain countries in the world not to be able to access this, uh, uh, these uh, um, drugs because of the patents issues and, and costs uh, that were driven by the patents. But the WHO never looked at my CV. <laughs> So um, they, they, they completely ignore me. I never received a response from the WHO. And, uh, and perhaps that was the right thing. Um, because uh, instead, I was proposed to uh, do an internship in the International Labour Organization in the crisis uh, response team. Uh, for those who know the International Labour Organization, it's not exactly um, you know, a crisis response organization. It's, a, um, it, it's more of an organization that sets the policies and uh, regulations and that convenes uh, different parties uh, around uh, uh, um, themes like labor law and employment and rights. And uh, this team uh, instead was uh, really action-oriented. Uh, it, it was a small team uh, that responded to natural disasters and conflicts uh, uh, by uh, orchestrating and, and bringing in the expertise from uh, the many departments of the ILO to give the best response. Uh, so I spent six years uh, with them and, uh, and I learned uh, uh, an awful lot because uh, all that I know now, I think uh, um, it, it, was, it was because uh, I was with them uh, for six years. Um, and uh, I also had the opportunity to, to travel. So um, very gently, I was sent to different emergencies uh, um, to provide support to our country offices over there. Uh, I went to Indonesia to, after the tsunami, for example, or um, in, uh, uh, in Sri Lanka, again, after the tsunami. I went to Argentina because initially we were also responding to economic crisis. I went to uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo um, for an assessment to Bolivia after the floods uh, um, uh, to do a needs assessment uh, as well, and, um, and to uh, Gaza uh, after one of, um, you know, the, the well, um, 
<laughs> I never know how to talk about Gaza and using a politically correct terms, but um, uh, yes, in, in February 2009, I, I went to Gaza to, to support, uh, I think, a design of a program and identification of a partner. So I, I had the opportunity from the headquarters to, um, to get my hand dirty but, uh, uh, and, and to come back and to have the time to reflect. Uh, it was a very privileged position work at the head office level, but at the same time get hands-on experience uh, in the countries without committing to spend uh, my entire life in, in, the, in the field. Um, and, then, and then I decided that it was time to go to the field and I went to Pakistan after the floods in 2010. I left uh, the ILO and I went with uh, the International Rescue Committee, which is uh, an American NGO. And over there, I led my first uh, program, uh, which was uh, a catch-based program um, using many different modalities because I, I was very inexperienced and so I wanted to do everything and <laughs> learning a lot though. And, uh, um, and, then, and then went back with the ILO in Iraq uh, for an economic recovery, economic development program, a completely different field. Uh, from, from the NGO world and, uh, and then uh, back again with IRC in Lebanon. And it's in Lebanon where I think that I consolidated my uh, cash experience. Uh, Lebanon has been, um, uh, I think, uh, a, f a fantastic place for, 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 for many of us uh, working in uh, the, cash, uh, uh, the cash sector uh, because uh, um, it was a, a, a relatively easy context where to experiment and, and where and where and where to, to try things uh, um, and make them work um, and learn from them. So uh, we set up uh, uh, a very uh, a very big cash program that was uh, um, uh, uh, targeting the refugees, the Syrian refugees, in uh, in the country. And because of the context, we could. Uh, you know, be very sophisticated in our approaches. And there was a massive emphasis uh, in, in learning and impact evaluations uh, and uh, in uh, designing uh, uh, very complex uh, um, targeting methodologies. Uh, it, it's not the typical humanitarian context, I have to say. And yet uh, the learning from, uh, from Lebanon has uh, sort of shaped the future of uh, cash, also in a, in a dangerous way because uh, it created expectations that we could do similar things in other countries where the context doesn't allow to do that. And uh, um, yeah, so I stopped there for, for another master in, um, in epidemiology, but I will stop here. In Beirut? In Beirut, yes. Right. When you say that you're able to experiment and do many things, was that because of the unregulated nature of the environment you were in? Uh, no, no, I don't think that was the reason. I think uh, that the, the level of capacities uh, uh, was very high in, uh, in that context with a very high concentration of um, national and international staff uh, that... Uh, uh, that could, you know, come up with uh, with innovative ideas and, and push the boundaries. Uh, and also because of the financial 
services and, and, and financial institutions that we could work with. We didn't have to um, to, to, to bother with uh, how to do cash transfers because uh, uh, the financial services are widely accessible. Um, so we could think of quality rather than the operational of the transfers and we could reach a very, very high scale, wide scale of outreach. I'm glad I asked the question. Hmm? I'm glad I asked the question. That, that's really good to know about why, what enabled you, the environment you're working in yeah. to provide those and test those models. Because this is something that not many people probably and emergency response and risk management have ever thought about in terms of a way you can respond to a situation. If someone wanted to move into this area as a career path, what are some things that you think that they need to build into their planning and preparation and experiences between now and when they try to get into that? Mm, there's no one way to enter the sector and uh, mine was quite unorthodox because I started uh, uh, mm. in a head office. Uh, you normally would start um, in, a, in, a, in a country, in a response uh, uh, and uh, experience uh, firsthand what, what it means uh, to, to do emergency or humanitarian responses. And, and humanitarian responses are all different from one another. You have the protracted crisis, which are the most typical kind of context that uh, in which we work uh, now. And the most uh, common type of crisis uh, in the world right now are protracted emergencies. And, and then there are the sudden onset crisis, the earthquakes, the floods, the hurricanes. Uh, and, and the set of skills and the attitudes are a bit different. So in a protracted crisis, you can come in with a, a development mindset. So you can uh, um, have an ambition to innovate, to try, to uh, experiment, uh, to, to improve over time. In a sudden onset, perhaps you have to start with a good enough, with a quick and dirty solution. Um, because what, what is crucial is that you deliver assistance immediately, because that's life-saving. Uh, so you have potentially two different types of people engaging. But in general, uh, the nature and the soul of a humanitarian person, um, which is something that you don't learn uh, anywhere, it's something that you either, either have or you don't have, is, uh, is, is that of helping others, right? Uh, so if, if you, and it's that of being very generous with, the, with your time because uh, the working hours uh, in a humanitarian response uh, are insane. And, uh, um, and, uh, and the pace is, uh, is hectic and the situation is complex and, uh, and perhaps sometimes you also don't have uh, um, access to, 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 to uh, the essentials of living or comfor comfortable living as well. You need to be prepared uh, to live uh, in, in a context where your movement is restricted, uh, where you know, where you can't, you can't go out, uh, where you have to stay in. And in Baghdad, for example, uh, the offices don't have windows because windows are, are potentially dangerous, you know, if uh, uh, rockets uh, uh, explodes and, you know, the, the, the sharp nail and the, and the glass from the window can be very harmful. So wow. you, you, you work and live 
in uh, spaces with no windows. So uh, I think uh, that first of all, there has to be a, an attitude. There has to be um, willingness to, to endure that because, uh, because it, it, it's, it's rewarding at the same time, but um, mm, it, it's, uh, yeah, it takes you away from family and from uh, comforts. So I was just writing down that this attitude of having the desire to help others to get you through the, the loss of freedom, the loss of personal time, the loss of comfort is one, and the endurance to recognize that you might have restricted freedom and you don't have the comforts of home and you don't know how long that might last. So the attitude of helping people and the attitude of endurance, would you say those are important? Yes, very, very, very important. Okay. And being a hardworking person. Right. Hard and also being a fighter, I think. A fighter? Because you have to. A fighter. Yeah. Yes. Tell us I mean, more. These, are, these are the qualities that I have, but uh, probably there are many ways uh, of being a humanitarian. But all of the, the colleagues I know, they are like that. Right. <laughs> so these are common traits. Uh, you, need, you need to... to, to be ready to uh, raise your voice and uh, to go against uh, um, to, to to go against uh, uh, the, the the mainstream sometimes uh, and to be in, uncom in the uncomfortable position of uh, um, standing your ground uh, when the politics uh, of it may put your own work in danger you know and you're there to raise the voice of others so that at that point don't have a voice mm. you're there to make things right and there is a lot of politics uh, in the sector so you need to be ready that you know politics and 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 the, and the words uh, you know those those uh, political words i would call them uh, may may also be quite uh, draining right what are the things that you do to get yourself through and to keep going forward i have no idea <laughs> i have no idea um I keep going. I have a goal, and uh, um, uh, I I don't know if uh, what keeps me going is that uh, I'm an optimist uh, uh, deep inside, uh, and I believe uh, that uh, we can make changes, but changes are not going to happen overnight. So um, I do remind myself uh, of the achievements, uh, uh, in, in, especially in, in times when, when it's hard and when uh, I may not see a solution, uh, I may not see the light mm. at the end of the tunnel. So, mm. um, and uh, I, I try to, to, to do uh, yoga and meditation. Uh, so, especially now in COVID, it's been absolutely crazy since, uh, since March. I keep a timesheet my average uh, number of working hours uh, um, in a month uh, has been around 200 and 
I think I already reached that, and now in June, at the 160, 170 hours of work in, uh, in 19 days into the wow. month. Um, so it's very, very long working hours. And um, the risk of, um, of burnout is always mm. there for, for humanitarians. And, and mm. in the field is especially visible uh, because uh, of the difficult living conditions mm. and uh, the fact that you don't have uh, an escape or uh, you can't just go out and have a walk. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, to find myself during this COVID response uh, in my own flat. Um, and uh, in a country where I can walk out, I can, uh, I can have chats with, uh, with family and, and friends uh, over, uh, over Zoom or, or Skype. Um, but uh, in the field, uh, you, you see a lot of uh, alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. it, is, uh, uh, it is something that in, in the most difficult context... Uh, you may witness, um, and then these are coping mechanisms, right? So your question is very pertinent. You need to have a, a healthy coping mechanism to, to respond to the times of stress, because there is a lot of stress in this, in this field of work. So would it be wise for people that want to work in this area to consider and practice and um, develop those self-management, those, those meditation, the yoga, the ability to decompress themselves each day so they have that before they go into the situation and also recognize that when you are able to leave the situation the project the response the you know the project that you take adequate time to decompress before you go into the next one for sure for sure and there's yoga there's meditation but there's also cooking i mean everyone everyone has different coping mechanisms the right. important thing is to find a healthy coping mechanism right that doesn't you know uh, drain you off or, or 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 damage your mental well-being or your physical well-being mm. yeah but these are things that you learn right when you're when i was younger i wouldn't think about that uh, I, I, w I would also have a different level of energies, things that you learn. You just need to go for it and try. Francisco, I really want to thank you for your time and for your effort and sharing your experiences. And it's a new topic for us, for our curriculum. And I'm glad that we've been able to speak with you about this and hear about your experiences and understand about cash as a response and also this very pertinent thing that you're talking about, about decompressing, um, having time for yourself, having developing those coping mechanisms, understanding that those difficult environments may be much longer than you expect that they're going to be. These are important things to know. So thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me.